0: Hello, and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, ScriptsAndScribes.com. And before we get started, I wanted to give a shout out to two of our new Patreon supporters, Matthew Bryan and Matt Lombardo. Thank you guys both for your support, and you can check us out at Patreon.com slash ScriptsAndScribes. But first... We've got an Emmy Award-winning writer and producer with credits that include Lost, Law and Order SVU, Charmed, The 100, Blood and Treasure, and many, many, many others. His uh, recent work includes The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, based on the 1982 Jim Henson film, and the live-action Netflix series Cowboy Bebop, adapted from the anime classic. He's also the co-founder of the WGA Solidarity Challenge and co-host of the acclaimed TV writing podcast, Children of Tendu. We welcome to the show Javier Grigio Markswatch. Thanks for coming on, hey, Javier. Thank you for having
1: me. How's it going?
0: Good. Your list of credits and accomplishments and achievements was longer than usual, so I'm a little bit out of breath. <laughs> you're very um, nice. Thank you. <laughs> but it's, it's great to have you on. Thank you for coming on. I know you're super busy, both with your work and um, everything else you have going on. Uh first off, let's let's get real. I mean, how are you doing during the pandemic and and uh, what are you doing to remain sane? Obviously, you're you're busy. I know you've got a you're you're just jumping on for a, a quick moment of time just to chat with us, but uh <laughs> sure. Uh what are you doing to keep busy?
1: Well, um you know, I have my job on Cowboy Bebop, so uh that is actually ongoing um so that that's an that's an ongoing thing so I'm actually writing a script for that show right now oh great which has been you know uh both great and problematic it's great because I have a job I'm being paid to write Mm -hmm. these are good things considering the state of the world and considering how um little certainty there is you know um so so I'm very happy about that Uh, I think that you know it's funny I was telling my wife this morning and I'm I'm affecting a much greater sense of calm than I think, uh, is anywhere near the reality of my, my, uh, state of mind right now. Okay. (laughs) Um, but, uh, no, I was telling my wife that, you know, for, so I've been writing professionally I've been writing my whole life, one thing or another, since I could write. And I've been writing professionally for, I think about 27 years now. Um, and, um, I've been working in TV professionally. My first two years as an executive. And, you know, writers, and I'm sure you've talked about this in your 200 plus interviews, have imposter syndrome, right?
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: and a lot of writers are really good at angsting. Oh, God, what if the fraud police comes and shows everybody that I don't know how to write? Blah, 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 you know. And I, I'm sure you can figure out how I feel about that attitude from my, my presentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I used to have a little bit of that. And I used to have a lot of doubt and anxiety about writing, um, even though I always liked writing. Um, And then I had a daughter at the age of 46 and a son at the age of 50. Wow. So my son is eight months old. My daughter's four years old. And now I have a job that I'm not good at that requires (laughs) the totality of my focus. I mean, I am homogeneously unsuited for parenthood. I mean, just down to from the the amount of patience that I'm able to muster most of the time, to just even my physical strength, you know, carrying around a 55 pound four year old is like, really like, I mean, I used to joke to people that my arms were made for thinking, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so, so, so I have to do this. And, um, you know, obviously, my kids are just the most wonderful, magical thing that's ever happened to me. They're, they're phenomenal. But there's a real difference between your feelings about your kids and the the, the job of parenting, uh, especially when you're a little bit you know older as I am. I've got friends whose kids are going to college and I envy them that they had their kids in their late twenties mid thirties you know so so now that I every day I'm faced with the challenge of mustering qualities that I don't really come naturally to me mm-hmm. in order to be a focused present patient parent to the best of my ability and still be a nice person to my wife, which, you know, anybody who's been in a marriage tells you that's not always the easiest thing to do, not because of anything wrong with her, but because of just how life is and how the grind is and the pressures you have and all of that stuff. And I don't have a lot of imposter syndrome anymore. I I found that in the last four years I have come to enjoy writing and, and to no longer have any of these, which I always thought were kind of bullshitty anyway, sort of, you know, um, 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 you know, psychological issues, oh, I'm not good enough, people are going to find out I'm not a good writer, and I don't deserve to be uh, F it. I deserve to be here. I've been doing this for 27 years. I'm good at it. There are challenges, there are issues, there are problems. But I mean, I'm homogeneously capable of rising to the challenges that that writing presents to me. And it took being a parent later in my life. And Seeing just how poorly I I, I have responded to it, <laughs> and how much of an effort it is for me to be a good parent, and 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 I think that I am a good parent. I'm not, you know, but 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 I do beat myself up over all the times that I'm that I'm cranky and that I'm not, don't have the amount of patience I need and all of that. And it's really brought into focus that writing is my vocation, is my career, is my job. I have an aptitude for it. I'm not a fluke. I'm not a mistake. Um, this is where I belong to be. And that and you know to some degree, that's, um, that's a comforting attitude, you know, and it's, and, and it also helps me when I go in front of a script or a rewrite or something that I know is going to be challenging and difficult, you know, I, maybe I'm not sitting there going, I've got it. And then, you know, the soulful struck place in the background, you know, <laughs> but, but I know that I'm capable and, uh, and, and, and the end of that anxiety for me has been very therapeutic. I wish most writers were able to see that about themselves, you know? Right. So
0: you've just really come up with the solution for an issue that I think really hangs heavy, weighs heavy over the the shoulders of of millions of writers around the world, from the aspirant to the showrunner, even, is imposter syndrome.
1: First of all, by the way, like, I'm in a really cranky mood this morning because, like, the weekend was really challenging. So, like, I'm just gonna bust it down for you. If you're a showrunner, fuck off with it, with the, with the imposter syndrome. Okay, like, if you're a showrunner, be busy being a showrunner. Be a fucking leader. And if you're sitting in your office worried about whether you're good enough, fuck off. You know, <laughs> be a leader. Manage your writers. Write your show. Get it done quickly. Stop brooding. Stop. You know, uh, uh, most of, most of the imposter syndrome showrunners that I meet are, mm-hmm. of course, they're fine writers. They got a show on the air. They're perfectly fine. Right. You know, are you Hemingway? Probably not. You know, are you are you uh, are you Paulo? Uh, I mean, are you anybody who's won a Nobel Prize? Probably not. But you're a good enough writer to be a showrunner. So just, you know, like get over it. You've got other work to do. And writing when you're a showrunner is the least of your problems. You know. Right. Um. And if and if writing is your biggest problem, you're not doing it right. <laughs> you know, because your biggest right. problem as a showrunner is making sure that 150 people. Who are running the hundred million dollar twenty episode enterprise that you're that you're charged with um, with running?
2: Right, mm-hmm.
1: your job is to make sure that they know what the show is. Right, their job isn't to know that you secretly doubt yourself and that you brood and that you're dark guy and all that shit. That comes secondary to you telling them what the show is and explaining to them what you want, so that they can do the job that they're good at and provide it to you.
2: Right. So right. I mean,
1: I have I have very little. You know, as I've gotten older, especially, I have so little patience for showrunners, especially who who, who complain about, about imposter syndrome. It's like they, if I'm your co-executive producer and you're, and you're a showrunner who has imposter syndrome, you have the job I want. Okay. Now I'm there to support you and I'm going to, and I'm paid to support you and I'm going to give you my best. Right. And mm-hmm. the least you can do is respect that commitment on my part by not visiting your insecurities on me, you know?
2: Right. right. Um,
1: and, and frankly, as far as my own personal imposter syndrome and all of that, the one thing that I am certain to never do is to is to is to make others suffer for it. You know, mm. um, you do that shit in private. Right. Um, you know, and and when it comes to you're a showrunner, uh, be a leader. I don't want to hear about how difficult your life is because I got to work with you. And my life is already twice as difficult because I got to shoulder my burdens and yours, too. Right. <laughs> well, well <laughs> Sorry, he... you got a, You got an earful. <laughs> no,
0: no, that's great. And you actually came up with a solution anyway. Just work as a professional writer in television for 27 years and have children late and you won't have imposter syndrome. So it's simple. You just laid it out for everybody. So
1: here's the fact of the matter. And I know know that, and I know that what I'm saying sounds glib because I do have all this experience and all that, but it takes a certain amount of ego to want to be a writer. Okay.
2: Right. Right. And
1: that ego is the ego of, um, you know, what I have to say matters, you know? Right. Um, and you might as well lead into it. Um, not necessarily in a toxic negative egotistical way that, you know, makes other people annoyed with you. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you can write, you got the job, you're there. If you couldn't write a spec that somebody could read and say, this person's good, they're going in the team, you know, um, then then you're there. And I think that the thing most writers need to do is work really hard to get over it. And I'm not saying that it doesn't exist. I'm not saying you you don't have it. I'm not saying it's not a valid set of emotions to have. I had it, you know, and I have it sometimes too. But you have to work to get over it. You have to challenge it. Because it becomes debilitating, it becomes obsessive, and it becomes unseemly, you know? Yeah. You got more than five produced episodes, shut the fuck up with the imposter syndrome, okay? Like, it's not even 27 (laughs) years, it's like a season of TV with two produced episodes, and get over your imposter syndrome. I find that imposter syndrome often is a psychological defense mechanism for writers not wanting to learn more than they already know, Mm. you know? Mm -hmm. A lot of writers don't like to be challenged in their skill set, Right. okay? They think they're good at a thing and they lack it. And weirdly, the imposter syndrome is a function of ego. It's not a function of an actual deficiency in your ability to write or your ability to learn. It's a function of ego. It's a function of I'm not getting the appreciation maybe that I want or need. And it's also a function of I don't want to face the hard parts of writing. You know, writing is difficult. Writing is challenging. Right. You know. Um, and I think people go and hide in the, Ugh, I'm not good enough, the fraud police is coming place right. <laughs> so that they don't have to do the actual work, Yeah, you know, because the work is hard. It doesn't matter how confident you're in your abilities. The work is hard, mm-hmm. you know, and it's exhausting emotionally. And when you get done with it, whether you like the work or not, you are tired. And I think a lot of people just don't, a lot of writers sublimate their um, awe at the mountain that lies in front of them by hiding behind imposter syndrome. Oh, wow. I hadn't even thought about that. Um, well, I've had I've had a long time to think about it. <laughs> also, by the way, if you've ever like, um, you know, tried to to uh, w- you know, uh, if you've ever pulled an all nighter waiting for your child to wake up uh-huh. uh, so that you can feed the milk and you can go to sleep, and you know, da 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 yada yada, you have a long time to think about these things. Yeah, you know,
0: no, that's true. I mean, I, my son is six now, and I, I remember mm-hmm. some of those times, but my head was so fuzzy from lack of sleep from getting two hours. Oh yeah. You know, a night that I, I really didn't
1: think about very much. So you're actually uh better you yeah, I mean it's it, but I think that one of the things that exhaustion brings to you mm-hmm. is that it, you know, if you're if you're really, really exhausted, um, sometimes for some people, maybe not for others, but for, for I think for a lot of people exhaustion um exhaustion removes a lot of the barriers, you know. You just don't have the time to have some of your That's um, true psychoses when you are that physically tired. You right. know. And I think that, um, you know, for me, it just sort of turned out that like once I once I tasted um, real exhaustion and real like incompet- like my own real incompetence, right. all of a sudden my perceived incompetence as a writer became a lot less of a problem for me to deal with. You know? <laughs> right. I just like, you know what, F it. I got to accept that I'm good at this or I'm just going to like shoot myself in the head from, you know. So I think, you know, look, uh, and, and I'm sure a lot of people say, well, he's being smug. He's being egotistical, He's an asshole, all this stuff. Um, but honestly, like I just get so tired, especially in the workplace, I get so tired of dealing with writers who, you know, daddy didn't love them. And now that's my problem. You know, right. it's bad enough that I have to write, you know, your show about how your daddy didn't love you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? like, and then I also have to deal with your issues about that. It, it it gets, it gets tiresome. And I think we could all do with a little bit of, you know, kind of like that, you know, what I think the, the, uh, the, the Buddhists call Shakabuku, you know, the, the, uh, uh, a head-clearing blow to the head. <laughs> mm.
0: <laughs> which they just got just now. Um, yeah. So y- you, we've talked about the imposter syndrome as yes. it relates to professional writers. Mm-hmm. There's also an underlying current, and it probably affects newer writers even more mm-hmm. so, which is the reverse, which is the ego, which is, at, at least on the outward veneer, the surface of... I, I'm great at this. I know mm-hmm. how to write. I'm brilliant. My ideas are gold. Mm-hmm. How how do, you, do writers temper that? Writers thinking that I they're... Think
1: that, I think that it is every any artist. Yeah. And I believe writers, I believe television writers are artists. And a lot of people like laugh at that. Um, but I believe that. I believe that we mm-hmm. are all artists. You know, sometimes our work is more artisanal. Sure. Because so much of the work of a television writer is to come in and, you know, um, truly execute another person's vision, and in that way, you have to be an artist, but you also have to be a little bit of an artisan. You know, you're bringing your craft to bear on somebody else's direction, and that's fine. That doesn't, you know, make you bad or a hack or anything. That means you. That means you're good enough to get a job as a TV writer. Right. Um, but I think that um, I think that you have to make peace, real peace with the truth that what is in your head the work of being a writer or any kind of artist right Mm -hmm. is the mediation between the perfection in your head and the imperfection that you are most likely to produce right you know you need to make a friend of the idea that it's never going to be what you think you know and partially it's never going to be what you think because you don't always you know look a lot of the skills that are necessary to make this thing come to life are not your skills you know you mm-hmm. can't build sets. I'm sorry. It's not it's not what you do. Maybe you can, I don't know. But <laughs> most writers are not good at making costumes, building sets that they're good at writing, you know. Um, you're in collaboration with a director, you're in collaboration with a costume designer, you're in collaboration with other writers, you're in collaboration with a director. What's in your head, you know, only the best parts of what's in your head can survive that process. And that's a good thing because it is in that gap that everybody else's ability. Um has the ability to flourish and has the ability to give you something better than what was in your head. Okay. Um, and if you are open to that possibility and you, and if you close yourself up from the debilitating impossibility, right. Of something being exactly what you had in your head, contradictorily, you're more likely to get something that's better. Because that means that you're not so focused on just the primacy of your vision and your own inability to reach it that you're able to share that vision and you're able to give it to other people and then other people can run with it. And if they can't give you exactly what you asked for, if you're – you know a good leader um, is confident in his or her ideas
2: mm-hmm. and
1: a good leader is able to communicate those ideas even and, – and by the way, even if you're not confident in those ideas, right, um, you're able to communicate them to other people and and you have some ability – To kind of cotton to the idea that, you know, um, other people are better at other things than you are, and they might actually improve on what you want, you know? Right. And that's how, that's how work gets done. Work, the work of being a writer. And look, I'm not saying that I'm some monolithic courage because (laughs) I can stand up to this and others can't. That's bullshit. It's not that it's, but it's, it's, it's having just the respect and the humility to look at the mountain of work before you and say, um, the part that I can do is the writing part, right? And I can challenge the parts of me that keep telling me, that keep trying to dissuade me from doing this because I can never reach the adamantine perfection in my head, you know?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's on the page. And then when it moves into production and you're a producer or a showrunner or a writing producer or whatever you are, it becomes about, okay, I've gotten it this far. And it starts with the idea. So I've had an idea that other people are going to get, get busy um, uh, uh, trying to execute. How can I give them the tools to execute this, right? right? Rather than saying, oh, I'm such a great and tortured artist. They must all come to me. They must all suffer with me. We must, you know, it's like, what can I give to them so they can actually make the show that I want? And once you, and once you, once you summon, you know, I, I find that, and look, I do not believe, I do not believe that I am at the peak of my abilities or that I have found or that I am even good enough, um a, a person to that that i have done my best work you know i've done work that i'm very proud of mm-hmm. um and i am also chasing an impossible goal you know um but i think weirdly in recognizing that impossibility and being humbled by it you have a better chance at reaching it
0: that really definitely touches on that sort of perfectionist nature i think mm-hmm. that that artists and and specifically we're talking about writers but artists have mm-hmm. of what's in your head not necessarily matching what's either on the page or on the canvas on yeah your,
1: but the problem whatever. but the problem with that i'm sorry to interrupt you no, no, I, no. i'm on a roll i yeah, apologize yeah. Please, um please. look the problem with that is that there's a point when perfectionism is perfectionism and there's a point when perfectionism is ego
2: mm-hmm. okay
1: and it's ego protecting you from the possibility of failure sure okay perfectionists um there's two kinds, you know, there's the there's the nobody can see this until I'm done with it perfectionist and then right. they spend 10 years writing the same script and then they wake up 10 years later and they don't have a career why? Cuz they've been working on one script for 10 years. Right. You know? So that's that's one defense mechanism. You're so precious about it that you can't show it to anybody and next thing you know you're still a barista. Right. You know? Right. You're not a writer, you're a barista cuz you've been working on the one script for 10 years while working as a barista, right? Right. That's one that's one version of 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 toxic perfectionism. The other version of toxic perfectionism is exactly what you just said, it, and, and it boils down to the ex, an expression that if you ever hear a showrunner say it, you should run for the hills. Don't take the job. If you ever hear a showrunner say, I'll know it when I see it, uh, right? Yes. a lot of people say, oh, that, no, that's just me being a perfectionist. I need to, I need to run through every iteration. Bullshit. That's you saying, I don't have it, but I'm willing to let you grind your gears creatively for as long as you absolutely have to until you hit on an idea that I sort of like. And that I can claim for my own, you know. Um, so 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 that's you know, like like I've worked with people who look when, when I when I work with 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 an artist, you know, when I work with with a costume designer, with a production designer, with somebody like that, I'm very specific about telling them, here's what I have in mind, right? And the problem is when you say here's what I have in mind, other people can judge it. Other people can give you the little notes and their opinions and their It's run for this reason, it doesn't work, and that's an assault on your ego, you know. So a form of toxic perfectionism is saying, no, I'll just keep giving you notes and, notes and 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 notes. And notes, and then eventually, someday in 20 years, you'll hit it, you know. And what is that a recipe for? That's if you're if you're a showrunner, that's a recipe for burning out your writing staff because they'll just write because, you know, the writing staff is there to provide for you. So they'll write until they die because most writers really want this job and they want this career. Um, and, it, and it's an abdication of your responsibility as an artist. Because your responsibility as an artist is to know what, especially when you're a manager and a producer, where your job is specifically to be the steward of $100 million of a studio's money and give them back 20 episodes of something. You know, every moment that you dawdle and that you say, well, I'll know it when I see it. Well, it'll never be good enough. No, I can't give you the script yet because it's not right in my head. That's a moment that you're stealing from other people. Other artists who need the time to do their job so that the show gets made.
0: You hit on... I think what is a very, very relevant and uh, common aspect of new writers in terms of their perceived perfectionism, which sort of masks that fear of, is it good enough? Mm -hmm. Working on the 10-year first draft Mm -hmm. of a script kind of thing. But I think there's also something that really holds newer writers back, and that Mm -hmm. one is sort of that Dunning-Kruger effect that Mm -hmm. they don't know that they... Don't know. I mean, they don't realize that their work is not at that level yet. They haven't learned Mm -hmm. enough about the craft to realize that what they've written is not good enough. And so they're so excited and so passionate about it and they believe in them, their ideas, and then their concept and their writing Mm -hmm. to the point where it's an artificial. It's not a barrier because they definitely want that material out there, but mm-hmm. it's, it's not ready. And they end up hurting themselves by getting it out there because they don't realize that it's not ready. How does yeah. a writer, a newer writer, real, learn or know that their writing actually is good enough?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, look, I, I, it's interesting because I feel that that goes, you know, like one of the, one of the places where you really notice that is in um, showrunners taking notes and not accepting notes, you know. And look, I think notes, look, I am, I am a writer and a human being as much as anybody else. And I am usually very annoyed by notes. I don't like them. I don't like taking them, Mm -hmm. but there's a reason why people give them to you. You know, sometimes that reason is a toxic reason of their own, which you kind of have to reckon with, but I think you have to look, I think that again, I I just, I just believe that there's a certain amount of humility that you have to affect. You know, I've, I've heard, you know, people who should know better in their careers and who should be in a position in their career where they were, you know, here, here's my philosophy about that. Okay. Yeah. If one person tells you you're drunk, you can tell them to go fuck themselves, you know? <laughs> right. If two people tell you you're drunk, well, yeah, you can still tell them to go fuck themselves, but you can have a little bit of doubt in your head about that. Three people tell you you're drunk, you're drunk. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and maybe you get one or two moments in your life when you weren't drunk and you get to say, hi, told you I wasn't drunk by and large three people tell you you're drunk you're drunk hmm. okay so you put your script out there and if you get the same feedback from you know a critical mass of people and you have to figure out what that is for yourself then that's a problem you know and again you have to you know look the problem the, the, the biggest issue with with being a, an artist is that there is no objective measure of either completion or perfection right you know and and it is up to you and you know sometimes sadly other people to figure out when something is done when something is ready you know and that requires that you make a concession to the idea of imperfection to the idea of things being never really being finished to the idea that things can always be um improved you know and by the way to the idea that if you that that if you are um spending other people's money you kind of do have to give them the thing they that they think they're asking for and that part of your job is to figure out what they're asking for you know yeah. i've seen showrunners on the top tier of showrunning you know where multiple executives tell them, I don't see this. And they're like, why not? It's on the page, you know, and, and, and refuse to accept that whatever was in their head, they have not communicated effectively. You know, Mm -hmm. um, I had a situation happen to me recently where, um, an executive, and it was, it wasn't the kind of notes call you want to have because, um, you know, just, it just sucks to hear this kind of thing, you know, but, but a, a very, um, tactless executive told me about a draft of a pilot that I had been working for several years that um the characters seemed stock and formulaic right Hmm. um no 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 uh uh, that they all seemed like types and they all they were all and and no yeah that they were formulaic and interchangeable now I've been working on the script for years now and that's the last thing I want to hear so of course I walked around for like you know a fair bit of time being really butthurt by having said Having had this said to me, you know, right. but I have to, still have to turn in another draft of the script that shows that I have thought about the notes, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you have to think, okay, I've been working on this for two years. Am I blind in some way to you know? I'm, is it that I can't see the forest for the trees? You know, maybe I just can't see the forest for the trees, you know. And then you start pondering, you know, and you start looking at it, and you go, okay, what can I add? What can I take out? How can I change the voices? You know, you have to be at least open to the idea that feedback might be meaningful and that there are other peers of yours who know what they're doing and who can give you actual advice, you know? Right. Um, and you have to be, and the problem is, is that there is never any certainty, you know, it's like life, you know? I mean, look, the same thing that that is so humbling and exasperating and difficult to deal with about having children is exactly the thing that is so humbling and exasperating about being a writer. Um, you wake up, you have kids, you think you had a good day. The next morning you wake up, you still have kids, you know? Um, I mean, you've experienced this, right? And like, mm-hmm. you think, oh man, I had a great day. I killed it as a parent. And then the next day you suck, right. yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's like, it doesn't matter that the boots on the ground um, are always changing. The boots in the ground situation is always changing, you know? Mm-hmm. And as a writer, you know, if you have the authority to say, I am done, this is it. Then uh, if you're writing for somebody else's money, they'd better agree with you, you know, that you're done and you're finished and this is what you're going to shoot. And if you're writing for yourself and you say, okay, I'm done with this, um, you know, part of it is okay, where do I go next? You know, what's your next move? Um, you finish a piece of work, you're confident that you're done with it. Well, then I think you have to be able to honestly look at it and say, here's what I got wrong, here's what I got right, here's what I need to work on, you know. Um, and uh and and I have to, you know, sort of move forward with that. And whatever the next thing is that I do, I have to try to work on those parts where I'm deficient, you know? Mm -hmm. Um And look, I know I know very well the parts that I'm not that that I'm not good at as a writer. You know, I work from plot inward. So I usually have difficulty digging to the hearts and souls of my characters because I, you know, I I, for some reason, I believe that people are what they do. Um, But I have also had to accept that not everybody sees it that way, you know. Um, And also I realize also that it has made me a less emotional writer than I probably need to be and that I probably want to be, you know. Right. Um, I like stories that move. I like stories that that go, go, go. You know, um, I like action. I like action as revealing of character. Um, but in that equation of story of of plot and character equals story, I'm definitely more more weighted toward the plot part, often to my great detriment. And I think mm. one of the things that people who work with me, uh, who work for me, who have worked for me and who and who also um, I have worked for um, that all, you know, look, that executive telling me my characters were interchangeable and formulaic that hurt, but it wasn't untrue, you Mm. know? Um, and, and I just don't like to hear it because honestly, I went into that script thinking, let's make it really rich. And I thought I had gotten to that milestone and then having somebody say that to you, like it's deflating and it's hurtful, but it wasn't untrue. Right. So now I go back to work and I worked on that. And thankfully I had, I have producing partners who are very canny about, Okay, let's, you know, and who really sort of, I mean, honestly, helped me, you know. And we were able to bring the script up to yet another level. And I look at that script now and I go, like, my God, that executive was right, but I didn't like it.
0: Right. You would mention that specifically you tend to focus on plot sometimes to your own detriment. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something I think that a lot of newer writers don't necessarily grasp as well in terms of mm-hmm. working in a writer's room. Every writer has strengths. Now you're all good writers in the writer's room. Sure, everyone has okay. a different what what they call what the superpower or there's many other terms <laughs> sure. for it. You know what Their do you nubility, bring to the sure. table because everybody's right. different. Like Javier, you know Javi is the the plot master, but then somebody may somebody else may be really good at generating ideas or problem solving, or someone else mm-hmm. may be uh, really good with character development i'll tell you i'll
1: tell you what there was a there was a show i was working on where like you know like and and i had signed on to the show because it didn't have any procedural mystery yeah i don't i hate procedural mysteries i am so bad at them you know like (laughs) my nightmare is somebody sits me down and says write a sherlock holmes story i'd be like yeah i'll write one where sherlock holmes fights a giant robot or builds a giant robot i don't know (laughs) i have no idea how sherlock holmes solves crimes nor do i particularly care to know like i don't like police shows anyway you know right right so so we're working on this cop show uh, on on this on this show and like the showrunner says you know this needs to have more of a mystery it needs to have the characters find clues and shit and I'm like well fuck that shit I'm I'm not uh, you know and I and, but rather you know what I, I said to the other guys in the room I said guys I'm no good at this help and they and and one guy who had done a lot of work in that field goes I got your back buddy and then you know he sort of walked me through it you know and uh, and yeah that's the thing is that like if you if you are you know like there's times in these situations where you just are not when I'm sorry to preempt your question, but let me put it to you this way. Um when I have staffed rooms and when I have had a part in staffing a rooms, mm-hmm. I've always said that staffing a room is about casting and not about shopping. You know? Um you are casting for people who can talk well to each other, mm-hmm. who can communicate with each other, right? And you're also casting people who have different mutant abilities so that when you, you know, get to it, um, the person who's really good at character has the support of the person who is good at the other thing, you know? Right. That's pretty much it. And I think part of a good writer's room is, you know, look, you don't have to flagellate and be like, oh, I'm not good at character. I'm not good at this. I'm not good at that. But you have to be able to say, this person's good at that. Maybe I should take their advice on this, you know?
0: Right. Yeah. The whole uh, jack of all trades, master of none. Not that every writer in a writer's room hopefully has is good at everything but being great at something definitely makes you stand out sure
1: and look i think it all i think it all comes down to and again i'm not i'm not telling you that i'm a master of this i'm not telling you that i've you know like I, i think it look i think it's really easy for um for it to sound like like uh you know i honestly i have no i have as much insecurity as anybody else and i have as much um of, of a, of self-loathing as anybody else, you know, <laughs> the other side of that is, but I also recognize that a lot of that comes from an internalized rage at a number of things. Um, and you, you know, humility is such a good thing, you know, sure. when you, when you are able to at least cultivate a sense of humility, uh, and it doesn't have to be, again, I don't expect you to walk the earth in sackcloth and hit yourself with a stick, Right. you know, I just expect, I expect a writer to say, oh, this writer's better at doing this than I am. What can I learn from them? Right. You know? And
0: that's the point though, because if you don't have humility, then you don't think you need to learn even at what you're really good at. And then yeah. you, there's no room for improvement.
1: Right. So I think exactly. that that's a great point. Exactly. And look, I'll tell you what, the things that I'm really good at as a mm-hmm. writer, mm-hmm. I'm kind of getting tired of them, you know? Oh. Um, And that's. You know, uh, that's just the fact. It's like, you know, like I have been writing a certain way. I think that when I wrote the script for The Middleman Mm in 1998. Oh. um, And then between that and the combination of, uh, you know, I worked on Lost for two years and I think I worked for two of the best writers that I've ever worked with uh, in the course of those three years. You know, one of them was was Damon Lindelof, Mm -hmm. um, who, you know, look, I think uh, his scripts just pop off the page. He is a an amazing, amazing yarn spinner, you know, mm-hmm. and, and seeker of twists and all that sort of stuff. And he writes in a very vivid way. Um, and the other thing, the other person that I learned a tremendous amount from was Glenn Gordon Karen, mm. who created Moonlighting. And who he runs Bull now, but he was running Medium. And I worked on Medium for a season and a half before the Writers Guild strike.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And what's interesting about him is that his idea for Medium was that it all had to be told from the point of view of that character, of, of the Medium character, the Alison Dubois character. Mm-hmm. So some of his scripts he wrote even without slug lines because he literally wrote them in such a way that you were behind her eyes and you were just seeing what she was seeing. Wow! And though I wouldn't write a script that way because I still think you need to actually give your production you know, sort of knowledge of what set you're in. Sure. <laughs> right. and look, he wasn't, he, and he wasn't that radical about it, but the scripts had begun to take on this quality. You could see him evolving into that point of view as he was writing the show. Um, you know, it's where I began to develop a lot of my ideas about how the camera how when you write something, you have to put on the page, what is essential for the camera to see and nothing more or nothing less, you know, Mm -hmm. on the other hand, from Damon, I learned that you can editorialize a little bit. And I think you got a lot of that from Shane Black, you know, that that there's a great deal of color and of almost an authorial voice in the scripts, you know, right. And I think that, you know, so so and, and I think that those things sort of came together to, you know, when I wrote the middleman pilot, I thought I had found my voice. And then I spent many years kind of figuring out what that voice was. And I think that if I wanted to sit down and write a script that was just me, you know, you can look at, I have a script on my page called, there's two scripts. One of them is called cat lady, which is like a feet John wick with a cat lady. Right. <laughs> and if you read that script, that is probably the, just the epitome of me writing like me almost to the point of self parody, okay. you know, like we're just literally, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, breaking the wall. I'm talking to you from the stage directions the characters all talk like me, but because they have very specific wants and needs, then that's how I differentiate, you know, like, 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 for example, sometimes you get the note of, of well, the characters all sound the same.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: when I write in that specific idiom, I say, yes, but they all have a very specific inner life. And that's what, you know, the, they live in a world where, they, where everybody talks this way. If you look at the middleman TV show, it's very much that they live in a world where everybody has a very specific speech cadence and everybody is sort of talks like a, like an overeducated Puerto Rican person mm-hmm. of my age. But what makes them not be me is that they all have specific wants and needs that serve plot character, plot and character, you know? Right. So much, much the same way that Aaron Sorkin, you know, can be the the accusation can be leveled that all Aaron Sorkin characters sound the same. All Patty Chayefsky characters sound the same. All Amy Sherman Sherman Palladino characters sound the same. Yes, they do. But what makes those writers great and what I am hoping to accomplish in some of the ways that I write Mm -hmm. is that because of how the world is built, that seems like a natural function of the world, you know? Right. So I've gotten pretty good at writing a script where everybody lives in a hobby world, you know, and talks like that. (laughs) And regardless of what the script is about, those, you know, and now, honestly, like after finding that voice in 1998 and then writing in it and and figuring out how to adapt it to writing other people's work and all of that, I've gotten to the point where I realized that that kind of self-actualization can be very dangerous for a writer because you just start writing that way all the time,
2: Mm. you know? Yeah.
1: Um. So, you know, right now I'm in a show, I'm writing on Cowboy Bebop. It's a great show because um, that show has a very similar attitude to some of what I affect in some of my writing. So I can slip very naturally into the voice of that show with something like The Dark Crystal. uh, That's a show that has no pop cultural references, right? right? It's a show that is earnest. It is not a glib show. Uh You know, it's a show where, you know, there's humor, but it's not a humor that comes from, uh, you know, it's it's just a very different set of parameters. And I loved writing that show because I couldn't, for a lot of it, I couldn't lean on my, um, on my go-to spots, mm, you know. Yeah. And that was really nice.
0: It, it's interesting how you talk about voice in terms mm-hmm. of you would mention that, and it sort of leads into my next question: is when especially for newer writers it's we hear about that a lot and a lot of newer writers have a hard time distinguishing what that voice is and i think you did a great Mm -hmm. job of talk of of also turning the flipping the coin on certain rules like Mm -hmm. screenwriting rules like make sure your characters all sound different but Mm -hmm. you actually showed that that's not necessarily always the case mm-hmm. as long as they have different goals yeah. or different needs like you had said
1: but Yeah, i don't think that i'm showing it i think patty chayefsky and aaron sorkin and amy sherman Palladino <laughs> have shown it i'm just kind of trying <laughs> well, but, you, Yeah, I well, hear
0: you. well you show it yeah. as well and you also explained yeah. it which i think is, is, yeah. is fantastic because like with rules every mm-hmm. rule can be broken i mean how many rules does sure. screenwriting traditional screenwriting rules does quentin tarantino Break. How many right. screenwriting rules, you know, does, like you yeah. said, uh, Aaron Sorkin break? It's it's yeah. or or you know, in in Goodfellas, uh, sure. you know, see, show don't sure. tell, and yet you know, there's lots of voiceover and it works perfectly. Yeah. But d- going back to voice, mm-hmm. how does a writer know that they found their voice? How does a writer find their voice if they're still so new? Like, how mm-hmm. do they find what they do well and how that they how do they put that on the page?
1: Mm-hmm. oh, that's a tough one. um I think by um look, I think you need to write a lot mm-hmm. um, again, you know it's the reason I always come back to the guy who's been working on the same script for ten years right like I mean my answer to that guy is how are you going to get good at this? you know how mm-hmm. are you going to get good at this if you're just writing the same script for ten years you know and, and look, I think that one of the um One of the the pieces of advice that I give to writers is um, find your theme, you know, and it doesn't have to be the same thing, theme, always, you know, but I think that every writer writes because they have something to say to the world, you know, and because they have some belief that that, you know, they want to tell a story, they want to, uh, 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 you know, say something about themselves, they want to say something about whatever it is, you know, but I I feel I feel on some level, every writer has and that's your, your theme. And there's something very different between your theme and your story. You know, um, your, 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 theme is that thing that's in your soul that, that you need to express, you know? Mm -hmm. And I feel like once you find out what your theme is, you, you, then you, you, you find yourself in a place where you can adapt that theme to 500 different things, you know? Um, one of the things that, that, you know, my, my former agent and and I had a always a huge argument because when I started writing in TV, if you wanted to write science fiction, you were going to be at the little kids table. You know, right. people who we now consider to be mandarins of television, you know, people like Ron Moore, mm-hmm. you know, who is a standard bearer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when he was writing on Star Trek The Next Generation in the in, in the early 90s and the late 80s, you know, that show was not considered quote, quality television, unquote, it was considered a first run syndicated science fiction show. And they didn't get nominated for an Emmy till their seventh season. They got a, a kind of, you know, a nice work uh, nomination for best drama series, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, and look at the quality of the work that that those guys did, you know, Brandon Braga, Ron Moore, you know, Noreen Shankar, Renee Chavaria. I mean, a lot of the people on that show that just have, have become incredible writers, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kept telling my, my agent, this is the work I want to do. And my agent kept telling me, look, uh, if you want a TV career, you need to get a job on a ten o'clock cop show, be there for two, three years, and then hopefully write your own pilot. You know, work your way up the ladder on a cop show because mm-hmm. cop shows, Stephen Botchko shows, Lord right. Cop Doctor Lawyer shows were the only shows considered legitimate. Mm-hmm. This wasn't that long ago, um, and I kept saying I want to write genre, and it was a huge fight. You know, and the thing that I need to say to the world just doesn't. Doesn't work that well in cop shows for me i'd rather I'd rather use different metaphors, you know
2: yeah.
1: and um and then you know so so the thing that happens with that is once you know what you want to say to the world you you find that you can write it in a lot of different ways, and ultimately, I got a cop show, you know I got on a show called Boomtown. Mm-hmm. My agent was very happy, right and you know what happened? I had to figure out how the thing I wanted to say in the world could fit in a cop show
2: mm-hmm.
1: and once you've had that challenge, you realize. What I need to say to the world isn't just in one script. It's in everything I write. Yeah. You know, and then you, you just, you know, okay, I'm now working on a show about virologists. Well, the thing I want to say to the world functions here. Mm-hmm. I'm writing on a show about a spaceship. Here's what I want to say to the world. How do I adapt it to that? And you just write and you write and you write and you write and you write. And that's how you get good at this. You know? Right. I, I was lucky, frankly, that, you know, um, I was able to get into TV at a time when shows were 22 episodes a year. And it was just, they were, you know, seven to 10 writers on a show and you just ground, you just had to grind, you know? Mm. I mean, the second show I worked on was The Pretender. I wrote five episodes of that show in the first season. This is my my story wow. editor year, you know? Um, that's crazy. I wrote, yeah, it, or co-wrote, actually, wrote or co-wrote. I think it was Still, see, yeah. four or five, four or five episodes. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's, and but, but that's, you know, and then the showrunners, you know, rewrite you and they tell you you're stupid and they tell you you're a bad writer and then they rewrite you and then you see what they did. <laughs> And then you say, well, they're stupid for doing this, but, oh, they really improved my work here, and they improved my work there. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, what a shame, you know, da, 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 And and that's how you get good, you know? Um, at least at this job, you know, maybe you're, you maybe you're, you, you, you write a better novel if you pour over it for 15 years or I don't know about that So I'm not a novelist. <laughs> and, by the way, the other thing I have is a great deal of res- – and when I say I'm not a novelist, I don't mean that disdainfully. I mean I'm not a novelist because I deeply respect what novelists do. Sure. And I don't necessarily think that I can do it, you know? So, so there's always for me, this, this, um, respect for other people's craft, you know, Right. respect for my craft and knowing that I have to work at it constantly. Right. And if you don't do that, knowing that the part of yourself that you put into it will survive regardless of what format you're working on, it's very hard to become good as a TV writer. Becoming good as a TV writer is what allows you to recognize, you know, when you've fallen short, when you've done well and what else you need to learn and know. Right. Now, I'll, I'll t- just if I can follow up on that. Oh, becoming yeah, absolutely. Good at some- becoming good at something doesn't mean you hit it out of the park every day. Sure. It means that when you finish the work, you know where you have to go back to work on. It. Right. That's what being good at something is. It's not it's not I write, you know, like like uh, like it's not I write a a Broadway like I heard Kanye West one time say I, I'm writing Broadway level songs, every song, just every time out, I'm hitting it out of the park. And I'm like, no, you're not, <laughs> you know. And I know everybody thinks Kanye is a genius and he is certain of his songs are are genius, sure, but not all of them, not the way that he thinks. Right. Um, Because he thinks that that he and and you see that in in, in his current work, every time he opens his mouth, he thinks he's a genius. Mm -hmm. And there's so much noodling, navel gazing bullshit that he puts out, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and and, and you see the decline of an artist into runaway ego very well in, in that guy's trajectory, you know.
2: Right.
0: Well, my question was more. You earlier on in in the conversation, you had mentioned uh, staffing like uh, Mm -hmm. on probably middleman, I'm assuming, and and things like that when staffing your own show Mm -hmm. in terms of for a newer writer, what. What stands out to you when you're considering a newer writer for your staff? And we're not talking about, you know, relationships you have and writers you mm-hmm. already know are great right. in the room and, and, and personality-wise that, you know, you're feeling your mid and upper levels. But for a newer writer, yeah. staff writer, story editor, what are things you look for? What are things that stand out to you? What, uh, what are things, in a good and bad way, uh, what types of personality kind of mm. tends to blend well with, within a room or even stand sure. out if you want that. Somebody who who not necessarily well, rocks the boat, but, you know, definitely uh, brings something else unique to mm. the
1: table. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit it, about that. Yeah. I think it comes down to, like I was saying before, you know, a good staff is is a cast, mm-hmm. not, a, uh, not a shopping list, you know. Sure. Uh, you can get 20 writers with great credits and have a terrible room and a terrible show because they don't get along, because they don't have, uh, you know, mutant abilities that complement each other and all that. You know, sometimes, you know, like I have, you know, like, like sometimes you want somebody who is a good manager, you know, who can run a room Mm -hmm. and, and that's a skill set. And sometimes that writer, you know, I've, I, you know, sometimes that, that person may not be the most dynamic writer on the page necessarily, Mm -hmm. you know, look, you get older and the truth of the matter is that unless you're like, you know, um, you know, looking at TikToks all day long and (laughs) on Twitter all day long and all that, a guy my age is not going to um, express the voice of the current young generation with anything near the amount of fidelity that a younger person can, right? Sure. But the compensating virtue is I've been doing this a long time. And if you give me a co-executive producer, executive producer, showrunner level guy, an assignment, I'm going to give you something you can shoot, you know? Right. Whereas, you know, I think you have to also be aware that the, the lower level writers may not be able to give you that immediately, Mm. you know? So I think also, again, in, in hiring a staff, you need to look at what you need, what people bring to the table, have, have real expectations, uh, sane and rational expectations for what they do and try to cast those people in such a way that, you know, your number two, again, maybe it's somebody like me who, 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 you know, um, Uh, I mean, I'm on Twitter all day long, so I'm calling people Bay and all of that, but, (laughs) you know, know, but, but still it's like, you know, um, I I can't pretend, you know, that, 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 that I'm, that I'm with it in every way, you
2: know, Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. Um, but I have managerial skills. I have artisanal on the page skills and all of that. Maybe you get a younger writer because they can bring that perspective on it. Maybe you want a, a, a writer of color or several writers of color because you need that on your show. You mm-hmm. need the diversity, you know, and when you look at those writers the same way you would, by the way, you need writers of color. Great. But you don't bring them in just because they're writers of color. I mean, you read them and, and the same way you would staff anybody else, you know, right. Um, you look at what your show is thematically and if you figure out what kind of life experience you need and then you try to build an ensemble you know, that, that actually works, uh, you know, and that the, where the, the, the pieces interlock and the best thing about a writing staff is that you might cast people thinking that they bring one strength and then discover they have other strengths that you didn't even know about. Right. And I, and look the other, the other thing about building a good staff, by the way, and again, it all comes back to humility. You know, you build a staff, you take a fearless moral inventory of what you're good and not good at. And when you, when you are, realistic about what you're not good at you get people who are good at that mm-hmm. and you empower them let me tell you a story about that because i think that this is one of the the the, the hardest lessons i had to learn when i was show running the middleman
2: mm-hmm.
1: um there was a I, I don't know if you know the show um it, 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 there, 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 there was a character uh who was the the lead character's roommate and she um just had a lot of chemistry with the middleman you know with with her roommate's boss right mm-hmm And the writers kept telling me you need to we need to build a relationship between these two. The two actors have chemistry. The characters have chemistry. You kind of hinted at this in in your pilot. And I'm like, I hinted at it, but it was a joke. I don't want them to have a relationship. He's (laughs) 10 years older than she is. Um, You know, he's her her roommate's boss. The power dynamics are are completely upended. And I don't think it's a good relationship to show on television. It does. You know, I don't want to show a young woman having a relationship with an older authority figure because I think that makes the older authority that makes her. That makes him kind of a predator, you know, and that's something that I feel very strongly about. And and we and my staff and I thought about this for weeks. And finally, they just they basically had an intervention where they just said, we have to do this. And I was like, okay, fine. You know, let's and look, they were seeing something that I could not see. And there's another reason why I couldn't see it. I don't like romances in TV shows, you know. Um, mm-hmm. my idea of romance is two people are good at a job, they do it together and they click and then, you know, maybe they have sex off screen, you know? Right. Um, like I don't, I, there's just stuff that, and again, that's a liability of mine. I'm not good at it. I don't write it well. It doesn't, you know, I, I don't have the kind of attachment to, you know, the romance of it that a lot of other people do and that other people do really well. You know, I could never write a, uh, what's that, the, the, the man who wrote Love Actually and Notting Hill and all of that, Richard Curtis, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. I couldn't write one of his movies. I love Notting I think Notting Hill is one of the best romantic comedies ever. I couldn't write that movie to save my life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I need people who are, who are tuned into that, you know? Mm. Um, I need people who are t- tuned into that need and that desire because, you know, like my idea of romance is so narrow and specific that I don't always see it. Right. And my staff, God bless them, they pounded me into it and it turned out to be one of the best parts of the show. Right. And I think you need to be able to to to, to say, you know what, I'm not good at this. I'm going to hire people who are, you know, and even when their insistence on the thing I don't like exasperates me, um, I need to listen to it and then decide I want it, whether I want it or not, <laughs> you know, right. and that's, and honestly, like, that's how you put a staff you, together, you know, you you're, you're, imagine that you're putting together, look, building a staff is no different from building a Dungeons and Dragons party, which is no difference from building an ensemble TV show. Okay. Mm-hmm. You need a magic user. You need a fighter tank, you know, right. who can take a lot of damage and do a lot of damage, right? right. You need a, a rogue or thief who can sneak around. Right. You need a cleric who can heal people, right? Right. right. Um, and you need a paladin who is kind of the moral center of the party, right? Right. That's how you build a writing staff, and also that's how you do an ensemble show. I mean, right. look at any ense- like even even an ensemble show that doesn't seem that way, right? Has that. Right. You know, like the crown, if you look at all the different characters, you're like, oh, that is, a, that is a D&D party. You know, it's just the way it is.
0: That's the best explanation of a writing staff I've ever heard. So, <laughs> well, Thank you. you. Know, that's very definitely. kind of you. That, no, that's awesome. That's, it lays it out very uh, efficiently and, and very visually. And so it's, uh, if, if people don't know Dungeons and Dragons, I'm sure they got the description based on what you would say. <laughs> uh, uh, definitely, uh, definitely apt and, and it fits perfectly. But one thing I wanted to touch on quickly that you had mentioned is uh, people of color and writing staffs, because I know that that a lot of reps, I don't want to say a lot, I don't know what the percentage is, but there are reps who when they're white male clients, or if white male clients or potential white male clients approach them, the reps will say, well, it's going to be too hard to get you a job. Mm-hmm. Or when their white male clients don't get a job, it's like, oh, they went with a person of color instead and sort of mm-hmm. blaming the yeah. the diversity in writer's rooms for their own clients not getting work. Mm-hmm. When you've explained it as, which I think is, is brilliant in terms of people of color tend to bring a unique perspective, a unique point of view that you can't have a writer's room with eight, 10 white males, upper middle class no. white males. It just, you just don't have the breadth of, of, of perspective and, and differing point of views. So uh, how does that, have you witnessed this or have you seen or heard of this going on behind the scenes Mm -hmm. of people of color or women, you know, uh, LGBTQ, I mean, different, you know, minority groups being blamed
1: for the, you know. Of course, of course, because look, this is an awkward transitional period in our relationship to race in this country sure uh, we're still a bunch of racists but <laughs> we have finally you know to some degree society has begun to to shame people and people are beginning to feel shame about that you know right. and I'm not saying racists like you're you know like like uh you know you you're, you're you're you know uh uh like racist, like you're, like you're uh, a Strother Martin character, right? you know, right, from right. a movie in the sixties, you know I mean? I'm talking about racism, like the casual racism of, guess what? Everybody likes to be in a room with people who look like them. Cause you understand them.
2: Sure.
1: You know, sure. like, I mean, that's just a, that is such an ingrained thing. People just, just, you know, they want that comfort, you know, right. and you bring in somebody who's non-binary and who looks different than you or somebody who's black or looks different than you or Asian or whatever. Right. And then you're like every, and, and there's a lot of people, you know, who, who just, have a real difficulty there you know and they have a lot of excuses for that well the bench isn't deep enough in the diversity thing or well i had a diversity staff writer and i gotta I, you know i, I there weren't good enough for me to pay for them because you know their first year is free and da da yada yada you know and then the other side of that is oh i couldn't give you the job because i had to give it to a diversity person Brr, you know mm-hmm. um it's awkward it sucks um it is the unfortunate side effect of a culture that is in fits and starts many of them very very uncomfortable trying to begin to address these issues you know mm-hmm. and a lot of people a lot of you know a lot of people in 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 uh my generation and above can't hang with that you know and they don't want to say it's because i'm uncomfortable this way they say oh we're the ventures berber know, all of those other excuses you've heard you know right um nobody likes losing a job you know mm-hmm. and 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 nobody likes hearing you lost this job um because you weren't the right fit for it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Nobody wants to hear you lost, you didn't get this job because they already had someone like you. You lost this job because somebody was better at the thing that you were trying to get the job for than you are, you know, right, right. or because, or or here's one, you didn't get that job because the other guy just liked another person better because he just wasn't that into you. Sure. You know, no one likes to hear that. Right. So what's better? You say, well, they gave it to a diversity person. Brr, oh God, the system's so rigged against me, da, 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 you know? Right. Well, you know what? When I lost jobs, nobody said to me, "Oh, you lost that job to a white guy." <laughs> right, 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 <laughs> you know? right, right, I mean, <laughs> you know, right. But let me let me give you let me give you a metric that, that I think you know it actually made me it made me a lot happier in my life, and, I, and I've discussed this with some friends. Don't start where you know. If you're not getting certain jobs, start measuring your performance by who you're losing jobs to. Mm. You know. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're like are starting, if you're losing jobs to people who are really good at it, then be like, hey, I'm really I must be really good at this. I'm competing against them, you know, but it's competitive. Right. And we're all coming into this. Look, the, the people who get exasperated with the idea of diversity hires and stuff like that, because I'm Latino and because I have sort of found religion about being upfront about my race after years of being very quiet about it, you know, out of fear, out of career preservation, out of not wanting to make a fuss out of wanting to just be myself out of not wanting to be seen as a quote, Latino writer, unquote, wanting to be seen as a writer first, I've become very vocal about, about, um, about this. So people ask me about related issues. And the question I always get is usually from an older white male trying to conceal their exasperation says, (laughs) when will it be enough? Hmm. My answer is always the same. It'll be enough. There will be enough diversity when the last gay, trans, biracial person who wants to do this job doesn't remember being made felt them less than by a media that didn't have some representation of them. Mm-hmm. That's when it's done. Right. And by the way, by the time that happens, I'll be dead. You'll be dead. <laughs> right. Because I assume with, with your last name Fukunaga, you you probably have some idea of what it's like being in an ethnic minority, right? Sure. Okay, yeah. you're not the one, you're not like, uh, okay. So do you remember that that uh, Seinfeld where there was a woman named Donna Chang, but she was like really white and everybody was always shocked, right? Right, 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 <laughs> so, right. So you, maybe you're the one Fukunaga who came from Sweden. I don't know, but I'm going <laughs> to no. make the assumption, okay? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, you're going to die before that happens because right. you remember growing up and mm-hmm. not seeing a lot of Asians in, in TV if you grew up in the States, you know? Sure. Um, You know, my Asian friends, a lot of my Asian friends, when – when um, When the John Woo's The Killer came out in home video in 1992, Mm -hmm. and we watched it together, said things like, "Where was that guy when I was growing up?" Right. You know. Um, That's when that's when it's over, and I think it's very difficult for, and I think a lot of people who have felt power, and who have felt the ability to choose, and now are being told you have to choose from a wider pool, resent it because they see it as a loss and not as a gain. You know. Absolutely. The fact of the matter is, yeah, a lot of people, yeah, there's a lot more competition from diversity hires. So what? The field was competitive already to begin with. Right. You know, you're just competing against more people. Um, and we're just in a place in our racial history where people are still using it as an excuse. There's still a lot of racism, you know? Right. And, you know, it's interesting because when you tell somebody, you call someone out on that, the first thing they say is, I'm not racist. That's not who I am, you know? Mm-hmm. And and a friend of mine made the point recently, and, and she's very, very smart about this kind of stuff. That one of the big again, it's a humi- it's not a it's not, a, you know, a lot of the times it's a humility issue, you know? Um you have yes, you have to hire people from a broader pool and all of that, you know. Um but if you have a problem doing it and you have to look at that and really interrogate it, it isn't because you're an awful person. It doesn't mean that you're a Struther Martin character from a movie in the 1960s, right? It means that you are susceptible to implicit bias. Right. That's it. Yeah. And that doesn't, that doesn't make you a horrible human being. That just means, yeah, you grew up in a certain society and that's what the society's like. And you still have this implicit bias. Why don't you look at it, examine it, show a little, show a little courage and backbone and, you know, see where, where you come out the other end.
0: Right. No, it's great. Um, have a couple of listener questions that I wanted to run by you quickly. I know we've got a limited <laughs> quickly, time. Have you
1: met me? <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, uh, okay, the first being Sandrine asked, what is the process like for keeping structure when writing in a universe that seemingly has no rules?
1: Um. Wow. Hmm. Well, I mean, it's like living. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the universe seems indifferent and capricious to me. Um, and you try to give it whatever structure you can from your own perception of it, you know? Right. Um. That's... You know, look. In some way, it, it's a very it's a very specific question, and, and I'm not sure what Sandrine is. You know, look. There's some shows where I've worked on shows where the showrunner just didn't care to make rules and kept changing them, and you know, you just try to like. I mean, you grab ankle and hope for the best. Sometimes, you know, if, if you're working for somebody <laughs> who is who is unwilling to, you know, look. If you're working. Here's the thing. If you're working for a boss Mm -hmm. and that boss has an idea of what this universe looks like and you're writing in that universe, but you looking at the universe from your thing, say like every time he changes his mind, the universe changes. You're in a real pickle because you have to kind of figure out where the, 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 the capriciousness is coming from and try to write to it. And you have to become your boss's therapist. And that's no fun because God knows being, you know, living in the mire of your own emotional bullshit is hard enough. Mm -hmm. Um, and and if it's but if it's like you know you're working in the Marvel universe and you don't quite understand what the rules are there or whatever it is you know they say you know it's kind of like i hate to make it so highfalutin and so pompous but it's kind of like the idea that life should have meaning you know right life has no meaning life is inherently meaningless you know you're you know and if there is meaning we are not equipped mechanically like our neurons are not significant enough to perceive the totality of God, you know,
2: Mm.
1: I mean, God is a huge fucking thing. It's bigger than any of us. You might as well ask a flea on the back of an elephant to describe the continent of Africa, right? Right. (laughs) Because we have a limited perception of the world, right? So the way you bring meaning to the things in your life is by putting meaning on the things you care about. And in a lot of ways, it's the same with writing. And in in many ways, it's the same as writing in a universe that doesn't belong to you, Mm. Mm -hmm. you know? You find the things in that universe that give meaning to what you want to say, right. and then you lean into those and assume that they have structure. Hmm. And then the showrunner tells you, "You're wrong, you don't get my show and then you get fired, and then you go to a show that's good." <laughs> <laughs> or not, or you just, you know, uh, never get another job and die, sadly. Well hopefully <laughs> hopefully that doesn't happen. <laughs> no, but you know, but, but what I'm saying is but but nevertheless, like, well I just didn't want people to just make yeah, the yeah, assumption yeah. that, you know. But That's but it's funny. more like but it's more like, you know, I mean you have to impose your own meaning on it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And
1: absolutely. your own structure on it.
0: Um Ted asked, um, I have a lot of ideas that I am beginning to write. At this stage, what should I write? <laughs> um he goes on, is is it good to write a synopsis and character description for each show? Once that is completed, should a pilot script be completed? I would like to get an idea of what should be completed at this stage. My goal is to create a portfolio of shows with the goal of selling them. Mm-hmm. There's um, a lot in there.
1: Yeah, no, there's a lot in there. And look, I don't. the thing is, I don't know. It sounds like, uh, like this person is very early on in their writing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I don't know how much writing they've done or how much television writing they've done. It sounds like they have a very good idea of what the business is like, and what they feel they have to do in the business. Um, and yeah, look, if you know, look, if you go to my website, OKBJGM.com, there's a bunch of pitch documents there. Mm-hmm. We'll have links. And frankly, I'm sorry. We'll have links. We'll post links on it. Oh, thank you very much. Uh-huh. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I put I put all of my work as much of my, I haven't gotten a cease and desist letter from a networker studio yet, so I'm feeling like I'm kind of getting away with it under the radar. Because technically the studios own those net, own those documents and all of that, but I've put them out there in all of their imperfection and all of their mistakes and everything, so that people can see a that people who seem successful at this job are still incredibly fallible and often make very basic mistakes. And mm. but this is how I organize my thoughts, you know. Right. If you want to sell a show, and that's your goal, then you should be writing, you know, you should be writing formats for those shows that may or may not look like the documents that I have on my webpage, you know. Right. But also, I think like you know, um, and I don't want to criticize the 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 person who's 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 uh, who's asking this question. I also think that yes, you want to have a portfolio of shows, but you should also. Um, I hope no, not you should also because I don't know what this person's writing practice is like. I hope that this person's writing practice also includes a little bit of. I have an idea for a show. I'm gonna make a loose outline or just outline it and write a script and see how that looks like in execution, you know, Mm -hmm. because ultimately something that, that I think, you know, I think we all have, we all have a lot of, well, I don't know. Some people only have one idea and they keep writing it over and over again, but by and large, we all have a lot of ideas, you know? Um, And I think that even a pitch document is not always a proof of concept, you know? Right. Um, And I think that, that if this person, what they want is to write a lot of, uh, you know, is that they have a lot of ideas. I think that, Part of the, 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 the feasibility test for whether those ideas are good or not is going to be can you write a script of them, you know, right. will they sustain 58 pages of, 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 you know, page by page drama with scenes and all of that, you know, so I would say, you know, you can go and look at the pitch documents, you can find them elsewhere also from other people you can, you know, like there's a lot of screenwriting resources out there for Bibles and pitches and stuff like that. If once you if what you want to do is lay out what the show looks like, you can totally find a model for doing that. And you can write 10 of those things. But I would also suggest to put, put a lot of effort into your own skills as a as a pilot writer. Because another thing is something that's being lost very quickly in our in our modern world of, hey, I have a good Twitter. They gave me a show based on my Twitter. Right. Is the idea that um you know writing pilots, at least classically, has sort of been perceived as the brain surgery of television. You know, it's the thing you don't do until after you can do you know, like you, you do all the meat and potato surgeries, you know, you can do a tracheotomy, you can do a C-section, you know, you can resect the colon, you know, you you know, you have all of those kind of meat and potatoes sort of surgeries that you do like in the ER and you move up to, you know, vascular surgery and finally brain surgery, you know? Right. Um, and maybe you park yourself in a specialty somewhere, you know, that isn't brain surgery, you know? But pilot writing is, that's being a Jedi, that's Jedi master level work, you know? And, and the way that you got good at that You know, 25 years ago, was you got a job on a show, you either stayed there or you you worked on a lot of different shows. You wrote a lot of scripts. You learned the structure of TV backwards and forwards, and then you got in there. And if you needed to break it, you broke it, but you broke it with intent, and with um, purpose, and with uh, knowledge. You know, like you can't. You know, Picasso had to draw as well as, if not better than, Leonardo, so that he could invent cubism. You know. Right. Cubism mm-hmm. did, you know, and that's the thing is like whenever somebody says, oh, my, my kid could do this, you go like, yeah, but it was the thought process that went from learning all of the rules to breaking all the rules right. that makes this art, not chaos, right. you know, not your perceived idea of chaos. And I think that that um, pilot writing, you know, needs to sort of be a, a result. There's a, There's a lot to be said for you wrote a pilot out of great energy, great insight and all of that. But being able to replicate that result is also important.
0: Right. And what I would add is if you're a newer writer um in addition to just writing as much as you can and growing as a writer and in and, and developing ideas a bunch of ideas because not all of them will be good and once you start developing them you will realize which ones work and which ones aren't necessarily Absolutely. as as grounded or as as, as strong as you would previously thought but also it's it's really about quality over quantity in terms mm-hmm. of once you reach that point where you're ready to go into the marketplace Um, Mm -hmm. it's better to have one or two really amazing pieces rather than 10 sort of half baked ideas that you think are all pretty good. And you just want to get them out there because you think if you throw enough stuff at the wall, something will stick.
1: You are absolutely
0: right. So I just wanted to add that as well. But I mean, I think your point of writing as much as you can to get better and, and, and figure out what works and what doesn't. Is, is crucial as well, because yeah. well, you don't, I think, you don't I want think to be that 10-year, be... one-script person.
1: Yeah, no, and you're making and you're making a great point, which is, um, do you remember those, the, I don't know, you're, you're probably, uh, I, I don't know your age, but it's like, th- there, there were these commercials for Gallo wine, and they used to say, you know, Gallo will sell no wine before it's time, okay. which is kind of hilarious, because Gallo wines are, you know, uh, 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 legendarily cheap. Right, but right. <laughs> even they, even <laughs> they right. uh, 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 knew the importance of leaving it in the barrel until it got good enough right right and look i think that you write 10 scripts you know like people keep saying well when do i know i'm ready i'm like write six write six specs and then get back to me Mm. you know and and then and then maybe you'll have one that is that is worth putting out there you know absolutely and 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 i think that that that's the thing that yes you have to write a lot you're you're so right about this you have to write a lot get good at it and then know which ones are the ones that deserve to be seen. (laughs) right
0: (laughs) yeah or even even write two scripts and then look back on when you re- finished your second script, look back on your first one and and see that it was not nearly as good as you had, had it could yeah. have been because you're now a better writer because you've written two scripts yeah. instead of one. Yeah.
1: So. If you yeah, if you're a writer and you still look at your at your very first script that you ever wrote and you pump your fist in the air and go nailed it, <laughs> you, know, you probably you probably need need to need to do a little more work, you know, on yourself and on your writing.
0: Absolutely. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Uh,
0: I know you have to go. And there's so many things that I I still wanted to talk to you about your background. We didn't get into a lot of stuff. So hopefully at some point when your schedule dies down, maybe we can have you back on if you have the time.
1: You You can absolutely tell from my demeanor that going into pontificating, which is a safe zone for me and I'm good at because I love the sound of my own voice versus having just had a difficult morning with my kids. You can see how much calmer it's made me so. Uh, so, so I assure you being on your podcast has also had a therapeutic person for me.
0: Well, that's great. No, I mean, <laughs> and you've been, you've been amazing and, uh, you're, Absolutely. you're also a fellow podcaster. So you should definitely check out Children of Tendu, which is probably why you're so good at it. Uh, you've had a lot of experience, so that's awesome. I appreciate um, that. and, uh, and, and
1: Children of Tendu is, is me and Jose Molina trying to give a, just share everything we know so that when you get in a writer's room, you know what you're doing. You know, and, that's and really, it, that's it, really our aim.
0: It really is a masterclass in, in television writing like script notes is more for features because obviously John and Craig although Craig's now doing television but anyway John and Craig and and if you know script notes if you like script notes and you want to write in TV you
1: definitely should add children of tendu to your podcast Yeah we're podcast. more we're more about the meat and potatoes of like you know how do you behave in a writer's room you know like like things like like we literally just just plop you into LA with a job as a barista and then walk you all the way through you know a very long career that you'll hopefully have and you'll sell things and you know how to, how to survive right it's it's more about that process i think for us you know it's more about and honestly there's a we did it for very mercenary reasons you know it's very easy to say oh javi and jose are such such humanitarians for giving away all this knowledge no we're actually being pretty pretty uh, mercenary because what we want is for you to know what you're doing when you
0: come into the room <laughs> right. with us so we don't have
1: to teach you <laughs> well it, it's very helpful <laughs> so, and uh, you, you know so
0: i i would suggest everybody who is interested in in writing film and television definitely check check out children of tendu we'll have all the links on our, our page so
1: Thank you so
0: much. And be sure to follow um, Javi on Twitter. It's at OKBJGM. I don't know what the OKB stands for. I can assume what the JGM stands for. Um, Uh,
1: It is the Russian. uh, It is the Russian uh, initials for Experimental Design Bureau.
0: Oh, interesting. Well, I'm.
1: I have have a. I have a. Fun. This is not the right word. I have a, a profound interest in Russian aviation. Because uh-huh. I find it interesting how they were sort of the Klingon Empire to the to America's Federation and all their stuff sure. is so like clearly made with a gun to their head, but they had to like accomplish things that we could do with money and freedom.
0: Oh. So <laughs> it's very <really> interesting <laughs> to me. <laughs> Clever, okay. No, it's good to know. Yeah, I had no idea what that was about, but that's good to know now. Uh, and now people listening have that little bit of insight.
1: So that's cool. And I'm not a communist and, uh, <laughs> yeah. or a Soviet. Yeah,
0: so, <laughs> uh, so thank you for coming on the show again and talking. Thank you
1: for me. having me. I really appreciate it. Um,
0: And for more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, stripsandscribes.com. Thank you all for listening, and remember to keep writing, and we'll catch you next time.